Welcome to the brand new series of ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you from ASM Technologies. In this episode, ASM Tech's Sales Director Ian Tomkinson and Account Director Stephen Dale are joined by Jay McBain, who is a Principal Forester Analyst and 2021's Channel Influencer of the Year. Over the next 30 minutes, you'll hear some amazing stats, predictions and insights from around the industry and thoughts on how emerging tech will impact the channel in years to come, the needs to be agile, how the US differs to Europe and a surprise prediction. All of that's to come. This is ASM Connected. So we're pleased to be joined today by Jay McBain. Thank you so much for having me. Both Ian and I have been using your stats and your predictions in customer presentations for quite a few years now, but it's great to be able to ask our own questions and see where that takes us. So we're going to stick to a bit of an outline plan, Jay, to try and keep us on track. We'd like to cover off emerging technology and innovation. We'd like to get a little bit into the need to be agile in the channel today, and then hopefully we can move on to ecosystems, platforms, and marketplaces. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. Excellent. Ian, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so uh, Jay, I'll I'll kick us off with, with, uh, I suppose, a nice, easy warm-up question, which uh, ease us into the conversation. And I suppose something that's very topical at the moment, particularly uh, we had Freedom Day not long ago in the UK, where a lot the restrictions uh, from COVID have been released. In terms of yourself and the channel, will you be switching your office chair for an airplane seat and a conference stage at any point soon? Or have channel roles changed forever? Well, I think two things. I think they've changed forever. That being said, you know, there is going to be a return to travel. There is hybrid travel today. I I do see my colleagues jumping out. There's an ASCII event uh, that happened yesterday and there's Robin Robbins events. And, you know, there's several events. Uh, I went to an IT Expo event locally a couple of weeks ago, which had, you know, a lot of sponsors and things like that. So there definitely is in-person events. I made a personal plan, given our situation, that I wouldn't jump on an airplane till after Labor Day in the United States, which is September. uh, So I can see some fourth quarter travel happening. But in terms of your second question, I think things have changed where the first time people come face to face and over the next few years, we're all going to focus on the personal elements of these events. The hallway chats, the hotel lobby bar, that's going to take precedent. And we're going to push these event hosts to record everything so that I might catch the keynote, I might catch you know a couple of key sessions in person. But most of the event, I probably want to put on my podcaster my video, you know, cue to grab on the airplane, to grab sometime else where I want to use that important face-to-face time for meeting people and reconnecting. And I think that's the hybrid going forward. Yeah, that's a really valid uh, point. I haven't actually thought of it like that. But yeah, a lot of the the time will be used probably more constructively to do the uh, the face-to-face meetings, whereas the other things can be recorded and you can listen to them at your own convenience, I suppose. Yeah, so content, and we're learning here. We're on this podcast now, and I listed a lot of the top podcasts. And you know, we've got people that are either riding their Peloton, they're riding their bicycle, they're driving to work. And podcasts have become a part of you know daily life. And it's a great way, conversational way to pick up good content. And I don't think there's any reason that I can't listen to a panel after the fact on my own time, you know, when I'm plugged into doing what, what I do when I listen to podcasts. And that, you know, very important hour can be spent, you know, the, on the personal side, which I think is, and it's highlighted for all of us during the pandemic, how important that is again. 
Yeah, no, no, valid point. And I suppose moving on to you know your role as a forester analyst and you know, stats is something that's at the core of everything that you do. And we've been, I suppose, I'd like to compare some of the stats and some of the conversation around emerging tech trends, which is very much at the forefront of our, our uh, minds. And uh, a few years ago, I know Forrester were tracking over 800,000 emergency tech companies globally. We've been tracking emerging tech vendors in our customer supply base. And we've seen an attrition rate of around 70% over three years, which is uh, quite high. How do you think that sort of attrition and the take-up of emerging tech, you know, will this scale and, and this pace of innovation, how will that impact the channel as you see it moving forward? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, it wasn't so long ago that I came up with an epiphany around emerging tech. And I, I think, you know, I probably wasn't the first to come with epiphany, but I had worked at IBM for 17 years of my career. When, when I actually, I went and looked up a couple of stats because I know that IBM has a lot of scientists. I know they spend a lot of time in terms of creating patents around some of their inventions. What I didn't realize is for 28 straight years, IBM has led the patent race around the world. And wow. in most years, it's not even close. I think last year, there were three times more patents awarded to IBM than Samsung, who came in second. You know, I scratched my head and looked at, you know, the second thing, which is IBM has lost money in 32 of the last 34 quarters. For the last 10 years, it has been struggling to make money. Wow. And it's facing another, you know, 1993, you know, de decline here. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to figure out like in 28 years of inventing the future of Internet of Things and AI and automation and blockchain and quantum computing and VR, AR, MR and drones and self-driving cars, I could list off, you know, 50 emerging techs, you know, they're sitting on a mountain of IP. And how could you possibly be declining while other companies are growing you know, like Azure is growing at 50% and AWS and, and Google are growing at 46%. The SaaS companies are growing at 30. RPA, which is a part of automation and, and AI, is growing at 81%. How could a company sitting on that mountain of IP not be monetizing that IP over 28 years? And the epiphany of round emerging tech is none of it is a product. And IBM, as a sales and marketing company, tried to bring all these products to market like they would a server, like they would a, you know, a piece of software and sell it through distribution and sell it through VARs and MSPs. And it's absolutely none of it is productized. So Watson 10 years ago was sold to us as a product that could cure cancer, nuclear explosions, could predict the weather. And 10 years later, we're finding out that it didn't cure cancer. And a lot of hospitals are actually sending it out because it's not helping the way that it was promised or overpromised back then. Where 10 years ago, if they would have spent their time selling into other emerging tech and selling into other software companies, for example, you know, they could have sold that into Salesforce and Salesforce would not have had to build Einstein. And so Watson could almost like Intel be inside everything we use today and a little, you know, sticker Watson inside on, on the front of every product. But it's not AI is not a product. You know, most of Internet of Things and most of automation and blockchain. None of it is actually the way we think about it in our industry over 40 years. It's all embedded, white-labeled technology. And if your company isn't good at, at you know, building out co-innovation and value creation, leveraging network effects, if you're not good at ecosystem, you're not going to be able to do that. The final part of the story is the CEO of IBM, the new CEO after the most recent one was fired, has come to the epiphany as well and has committed a billion dollars with a B to actually invest in ecosystem to drive this 28 years of innovation. 
And that's going to be, you know, the kind of the, the march at IBM for the next decade. Uh, that surprises me because, you know, knowing the history of IBM, you know, IBM were the very first company to embed another person's technology into their technology, i.e. Microsoft Windows, onto a PC. They were the very first people to be doing that. Yeah. And if you read the book, and I was kind of, you know, there through some of those early years. But if you read the book about, you know, Bill Gates, when he flew to Boca Raton, yeah. Florida, and, you know, understand the creation of the PC and how they chose the Intel 8088 processor and Microsoft and the 11 other components, which were all external to IBM at the time, you know, this was viewed as a hobby. You know, this was viewed as a, as a machine that, you know, might only sell 10,000 units. You know, this at the time at IBM, the redheaded stepchild. Here's a company that was selling mainframes to banks. And this small little tiger team out of, you know, Southern Florida was creating this and they made that decision on purpose. It wasn't a mistake to give Bill Gates the keys to the castle. (laughs) It wasn't a mistake not to acquire Intel. They owned 10% of Intel at that time. They could have easily bought Intel completely. Microsoft, there was a rumor they could have bought them for, you know, something very small. Like we're talking a couple million dollars at that time. And if they did that, the PC would have never been in the way that we know it. The whole industry would have shaped up differently. And mm. so that whole thing wasn't, you know, as much of a this wise embedded white labeled strategy as it was a, a offshoot small test pilot for a company like that. So it, it was a mistake that worked out well for all of us, but, you know, I don't think it was as planned as, as, as people may think. Well, one of the things that, you know, Steve and I, when we're bouncing ideas around in the business, one of the things that we talk about on a regular basis is obviously the attitude to particularly end customers, which obviously has a, a direct impact on the channel, has shifted significantly to innovative technologies. And going back, talking about IBM and 10 years ago, if it wasn't IBM or Cisco, people wouldn't really trust it. If it's not coming from one of the tier one brands, there was a real sort of trust issue and it was a very difficult conversation. You know, there's been a certain shift, particularly in the last, I would say, five years towards innovation. And, you know, we're seeing that on a regular basis. Steve, I know we've talked about that pace of change a fair bit. Yeah, I think from what you're saying now, it's about those critical decisions that these companies have made over the years. And what we see with the pace of change now is that they're having to make those decisions more often and whether they get them right or wrong has such a a big impact. So I talk to customers a lot this in terms of agility and I find it a really fascinating subject to, to talk about because we're usually speaking to our customers who are the big tech companies out there. And they're not normally the ones that are known for being particularly flexible. But what I'm seeing at the moment, and and I'm quite surprised by, is some of the front runners that are leading the way, being agile, making the changes to the new ways, is not who you might have expected. So I'm keen to find out, Jay, what's your view on this need to be agile today throughout the channel and kind of who's getting it right and who's getting it wrong? Yeah, so there's massive changes happening in our industry and there's massive changes in this new buyer. We spend a lot of time at Forrester researching this and writing about it. We know about these digital and digital only journeys. We know that the demographics are changing in four to five years as the majority buyer of technology will be a millennial. The biggest shift for all of us though is the decentralization or the democratization of decision making. So 10 years ago, when, you know, or 20 years ago, when you didn't get fired for buying IBM or, or Cisco or Oracle or SAP, this showed up on a big RFP and it was procurement led. And these RFPs were millions of dollars. And you would never award an RFP like that to, you know, five guys in a garage. 
you just wouldn't. And, you know, even in managed services, you know, you wouldn't award that to a small VAR. You always brought it, you know, up to an enterprise level sale. Things shifted quickly. And we talked about it 10 years ago, called it shadow IT or rogue IT. And you'll notice we never talk about that anymore because shadow IT won. Today, 65% of all business and SaaS decisions are made outside of IT, two thirds. So these don't start as million dollar procurement led RFPs. They start as land and expand. It starts with the first 30 days of a project. And you wonder how a company like Salesforce in 1999 got its start, started winning these little departmental deals on credit cards, departmental credit cards, and started infiltrating its way into organizations to where today it's a $25 billion company. Last week, it surpassed SAP in revenue. It's worth more than Oracle on the stock market. It's a Dow 30 company, one of the 30 companies that everyone in the world watches every day uh, in terms of their stock price. I think they'll be the next trillion dollar company. That's a grassroots, you know, very divisional departmental line of business purchase that's now taken over. So in the day where there's no million dollar RFPs, other business models now around agility. So Zoom, which got a lot of news this week for acquiring 5.9 in CCAS, which is contact center as a service. Zoom is a product-led growth company. There is no resell. The product itself sells itself at about 40 minutes when it's about to hang up on your customer. You quickly type in your credit card number. If 50 people from your company type in their credit card number, somebody from Zoom calls your CFO or CIO and says, hey, you got 50 licenses. Why don't you give everybody a license? We'll reduce the cost and we'll make it more secure and compliant. That's the product-led growth model. There are subscription and consumption models starting to serve this new buyer. Companies like Cisco and Dell and HPE and IBM and others, Nutanix, have gone all in 100% on subscription and consumption. So you won't be able to buy an HPE server come January. It will all be GreenLake, where you, know, you would have spent a million dollars in your raised floor Now it's $9,000 a month forever. That $9,000 is meant as a land and expand and even can be afforded on a departmental credit card. So every company is moving these models, usage-based models, value-based pricing, and all of this connects to marketplaces, which grew more in three months last year than the last 10 years combined. So this whole change of procurement, this whole change in terms of where decisions are made and how money is spent is having a revolutionary shift in terms of the channel. Much of it that you know, relied on these million dollar margins you know, to pay their mortgage. And that's the big change that we're going through now. Yeah, we've seen it, Jay. Um, I mean, that shadow IT and that decision-making change, say it's gone on for a few years now. We've noticed it both from a sales and a procurement side of the organization where we're having to go out and have more conversations with more people across the business. And I think you've said it before, People are savvy. People do their own research. People make decisions about the kind of technology they want to use. So we've kind of been rolling with that shift over the last few years. And I'd I'd say we're getting used to that a little bit. But what I find interesting is when you talk about these first 30 days. And is it true, you think, that the big companies that have flipped to this subscription model, is it because they can afford to do that? Because I was thinking the smaller companies might have been the first to go to that new type of model, but is it a cash flow issue or something else that's meaning the HPs of the world are winning that race a little bit? Yeah, don't be confused in any of this. This is the investors, the shareholders, the stakeholders that are driving this. If you're a public company, if you're a private company, 
your private equity or your venture capital board is pushing you to do this. They recognize the $5 trillion value companies around the world, and they recognize that they are platform ecosystem-led companies. And how they make so much money and why they're in court right now, you know, most of the five companies are for antitrust, overtaxing their power on their platform, power on their ecosystem. Apple is in court with Epic. You know, Google's been in court in Europe and in the US uh, every day for years now. Microsoft has largely avoided kind of that um, the pain, but everyone else is, has been suffering from this. And this is the reason is that they hold this power as a subscription model. And then the digital marketplace is this way that money changes hands. The, the fact that they now own and they're driving these enterprise credits to get all the money flowing digitally into their marketplace means that they can put taxation on it. I recorded a quick little video on YouTube on why Salesforce, as only a $25 billion company, is going to be the sixth company around the world valued at a trillion. And they're going to beat Cisco and, and Dell and HP and IBM. They're going to beat everybody else to it because of this model. And it is about valuation. Customers are not even that fast into marketplaces and subscriptions as these companies want to go. And every company in every industry right now are thinking about that. The people who make your peanut butter are trying to think about how the packaging can change, whether it sits on an internet of things, way scale, there's a camera, the, you know, the fridge, something is monitoring your peanut butter and you set it and forget it. And every month, every two months automatically, you know, here comes a new peanut butter to replace the old. And now you've made your brand selection for life. People who make your car, people who make your toothbrush, everything you consume in your personal life and professional life. At least 76% of CEOs right now think that their current business model will be unrecognizable in five years. And they're all going into these consumption models, which actually makes a lot of sense. My printer calls home when the ink is low, which is great. And new ink shows up at my door. So I'm never out. Uh, the paper sits on a little weigh scale, internet of things weigh scale. When it gets down to less than five pounds, it triggers an order. And now those are two things I never have to think about again the rest of my life. I'm never going to run out of paper and I'm never going to run out of ink. And I shouldn't be spending any brain cells thinking about that. And it's good that all these companies are offering this up as a procurement or a consumption type of model in most of what you buy. So this is radically shifting business and the ecosystems that come around this are the things that I study of how to make it all work. So it's a bit like, uh, I think you said it yourself, Jay, that every company is becoming a, a tech company. And th this is not you predicting the future, is it? This is all happening right here, right now. It makes those sort of short-term predictions a little bit easier for you because it's obvious how it's going and because it's moving so quickly. And you've talked a lot about ecosystems there. So I think that sort of pushes us nicely onto that. The next question I had. So I saw on LinkedIn recently that you've been tracking the uptake of this term ecosystem and how people are changing job titles, LinkedIn posts and things like that. It seems everybody needs to be either an ecosystem, a platform or a marketplace, or maybe even all three at the moment. Do you see this as a, a big shift in almost renaming and defining what we do in the channel? And is it going to see a, a retiring of the old terms like sort of distribution alliances and resale? You know, how big a change is that? Yeah, it's actually not a change at all. It's a roll up of all those things. Ecosystem is a third party relationship that you have in your business. 
And it could be with your supply chain. You know, for example, in your Apple iPhone, there's 900 different raw materials that go into making an iPhone. What's different is, you know, some of those are mining companies in Africa that, that are mining resources. But the fact of the matter is many of those supply chain companies are jumping around with Apple and co-innovating, creating value, and then jumping further ahead in terms of driving other customer opportunities. So they're not just supply chain partners anymore. You think about the distribution, the routes to market and everything else, all of these players, like every customer of Microsoft, for example, are quickly becoming partners of Microsoft in the afternoon. This is why they're recruiting 7,500 new partners a month, because they are giving the tools on their platform for innovation. You know, a customer can make a workflow or a piece of business logic or a you know, specific set of processes and they can codify them. And once they do that, they figure out that they could sell that to their competitors and they can sell that to other industry type players around the world. So each solution today has seven layers to it on average. And the base solution could be a Microsoft or an AWS or a Google or an IBM or an SAP. The base platforms that we talk about all the layers of security and automation and these workflows and, and something very minor are all part of this now. You can go to a GoDaddy and get a $5 URL. You can fire up a LinkedIn page and by Monday, you are a vendor. And so like a company like Accenture, which talks a lot about ecosystems, they have over a thousand software companies right now that they built around Salesforce by basically taking lightning flows and lightning bolts which is kind of the RPA and the um, no-code, low-code platform on Salesforce and creating some very specific last-mile industry software, which are nothing more than just simple workflows in a lot of cases, but they're actually selling them as products on the App Exchange. So when you name those three things, a platform is what every company wants to achieve in their industry. You want to be that base layer of that seven-layer cake because that's where the most value is. When you earn that platform status and where a customer starts and innovates around you, and you're one of the suns that the planets rotate around, that has the most economic value. And back to our investors again, that drives the highest valuation for any kind of company. But the platform, and then you've got obviously this ecosystem of partners. So back to Salesforce, they're recruiting 250,000 new partners right now in their ecosystem. 250,000. And then the same day they announced that, they shut down their resale program. So there's no other way to, to get Salesforce than to buy it through the app exchange. So you start to see the trifecta take place. Salesforce is this platform that offers up all these no-code and low-code and open APIs and, and business flows. They're also a company that has you know, hundreds of thousands of partners in with customers during their digital or digital-only journeys you know, to what they should buy. And then they've got Marketplace, which is the app exchange. We ranked it number one in terms of feature and function in the world. It beat out Alibaba. It beat out Amazon, which two companies who know a lot about marketplaces. Salesforce has a better software marketplace than they do at this moment. And so they're going to tax not only the other software, the other six layers, which they do today at 15%, but over time, every dollar of Salesforce kicks out $4.65. 64% of that is professional services. So they're going to, at some point, probably take the money, all of it, you know, $5.65 of it, and then they'll be the ones that pay out Accenture. They'll be the ones that pay out you, managed service providers and VARs and consultants and digital agencies and all the 16 kinds of partners that do all those professional services. They'll be the collection point of the money and they'll be the platform that can tax it. So the ecosystem is directly linked to the platform and directly linked to the marketplace. 
they're all one and the same. And that's how companies of the future are thinking about agility. That makes sense. That obviously there's a big control issue. I, I wrote down when you were talking uh, before about changes. I wrote down cash and control, which is obviously key to a lot of this. But I think I saw Microsoft recently had reduced their commissions on their marketplace to try and drive vendors and people in. Could that be a, a sort of race to the bottom? Or once they've got control, are they going to prop that that commission and costs up? Yeah, so this was a monumental shift. And, you know, when I posted that on LinkedIn, it's got like 100,000 hits because, you know, in this decade of the ecosystem, we're very early. We're in the first couple of years of the decade. And, you know, I was assuming a decade of where over taxing, like things like Apple charging Epic Games 30% is going to be defeated in court. There's just no way that consumers are going to be okay with a company who makes more profit every quarter than many companies' GDP every year and somebody else's innovation at 30%. You know, Apple charges uh, newspapers and magazines 40% to be on the News Plus because they own the eyeballs. Between them and Google, they own 99% of eyeballs on mobile and they own 86% of eyeballs on desktops and laptop browsers. So that is over taxation. That is over flexing power. And governments, the European Union and the US government and APAC, everybody's going to get on board to shut that down. But I think that most people agree that 15% isn't actually that bad because it's a lower cost to acquire a customer than other options. Putting a bunch of sales and marketing and other stuff forward and paying a channel to go resell it, 15 is a lot cheaper than all of that. So that's where I thought it would land. And when I said Salesforce was going to be a trillion dollar company, I was using that 15% number as part of my calculation. And then Microsoft goes last week and drops it to three and basically tells the market that Microsoft's not going to profit off other people's innovation. The 3% is almost like when you swipe your credit card, there's 17 companies, mostly in New York, that make money every time you swipe your credit card. And that's the transfer fees and the movement of money and the cost of money and all the other things that go on there. And that's what Microsoft's doing is 3% will pay for the people and the technology and the servers to run that marketplace. And it's basically a break even. And we're not going to tax innovation. And I think governments really like that, that they're not taking advantage of their strength and their platform and their multi-trillion dollar valuation. And I'm asking now whether other companies... Like I think AWS and Google have to fast follow on many of their big SaaS partnerships. They do offer, you know, 3% as a way to negotiate down. But unless you're selling millions of dollars, it's tough to get to those numbers. Microsoft's allowing those five guys in a garage to start at three, which I think is good for all of us. All boats are going to rise. And if everybody has to fast follow, this is going to change our industry, probably more than a lot of other things in terms of driving the future of innovation. That's going to be a really interesting one to keep an eye on. And I think it's quite easy to get carried away with the big companies with this control. But the positive side that I'm taking from it is that there is a play in this for everyone, as you spoke about before. And I know from our experience, we speak to our customers about co-innovation and co-creation, which you mentioned earlier. And it is filtering down to all those levels of the channel. And we're all being asked by our customers to bring something to the table to that extent. So I do think there's a lot of positives for us to take out of it. And I know you've touched on a, a few things about the EU there and the USA. And I think Ian was interested to ask you something about those differences. Yeah, one of the uh, things that fascinates me is obviously is that there seems to be, in my opinion, quite a difference between the channel in the US and across Europe. Do you see a, a big difference in the two? 
Oh, there's a, there's a massive difference. And you know it goes in a lot of ways, but I'll start with distribution. In Europe, you've got 150 strong value-added distributors that drive local language, local currency, local t- taxation, local relationships, and really that ownership at, you know, at more of a regional or industry or product or buyer type of basis. So if I want to go to market in Europe, I can be very selective across the five vectors. You know, if I have a particular buyer I'm interested in in Europe, if I have a particular sub-industry, there's 297 sub-industries, I want to go after 50 doctor clinics in Scotland. If I have, you know, specific geographies, you know, there's 75 countries in EMEA total. You know, if I've got specific places I want to go, if I've got specific sector size and segment, you know, I want to win the high side of SMB and the low side of mid-market, I can get very prescriptive. And then number five, you know, product areas. We're tracing 250 products across hardware, software, and services. And I can go and find a value-add distributor that specializes in my layer of security, for example. So those are the five kind of vectors from a customer perspective. And then there's 16 different kinds of partners. If I'm looking to acquire, you know, or recruit managed service providers, you know, there's the sixth vector right there. So in Europe, I can get out with, you know, very surgical. I can get out my knife and try, you know, and get very specific. In the US, you're faced with Ingram. And now Tech Data and Cynics have come together to become the largest distributor. I mean, you've only got a handful of these Fortune 500 sized distributors. And you could be the five guys in a garage I talked about, and you walk into these distributors and they ask you for a million dollars to put your logo on a page. And when I worked at Lenovo and when I worked at big companies, you know, I used to sign over that million dollar check every quarter, they would send 80% of it to their bottom line. They might distribute $50 billion in products at break even. And the only profit they show to the bottom line is the marketing dollars behind the million dollar checks all the big companies write them. And it's so hard to get into the 200 vendor line card at these distributors. And it's a pay to play. And most vendors, especially SaaS companies and these cloud companies now are finding and security companies, there's 2000 security companies in the channel are finding that they can't afford a broad line distributor like that. It's not like the old model. And so going to market in the US, and this is what I publish a lot on my blog, you know, the 143 social groups that uh, partners are in. The 100 podcasts they listen to, the 54 magazines they read, you know, companies take a very community approach and start to do grassroots level marketing. And those are the ones that are doing the best. The companies that are valued the highest, like a Datto is valued at 4.2 billion. A company I used to work for a little while at Autotask is worth today 4.2 billion. They've only ever taken a partner first community approach to winning. And today they're worth three times more than ConnectWise. Uh, but ConnectWise will go public and be valued at that as well. But these community companies are winning in the United States, and they're trying to take a lot of that community approach you know, into Europe and, and things like that. And that's starting to change the game a little bit as well. Great. No, no, that's, uh, that's an insightful answer. Thank you for that. And probably, as I suspected it would be, that there is uh, yeah, very much a divide between the two. And uh, I, I can see it coming to closer over the coming years, which, which will be good to see. Lastly, just as a, a wind down question, one of the things that I normally ask uh, guests on the ASM podcast for is their predictions for the uh, top four of the English Premier League. But I thought it would be a little bit unfair to ask you uh, that. So I thought I'd ask you for the your predictions on the Super Bowl finalists this year. Yeah, that's funny. I, uh, I, I followed actually the, um, the most recent, what we call soccer, you know, watched England and Italy go to the final shootout. And none of us in the United States, I'm Canadian, by the way, but none of us understand how you could take a championship or the World Cup into 
into that kind of final. We love to play the drag down overtime that might run for three hours, but yeah. we want to see a goal scored to win. We don't want to see some something like that. So all of our sports are made on these, you know, you might stay up to one or two or three in the morning to see who the winner is going to be, but you feel satisfied. If, whether you win or lose, you're going to have a, a real winner. So in, in terms of football, and again, I'm a Canadian, you know, you could ask me about hockey, Tampa Bay, just won their second Stanley Cup uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is in my state of, of Florida. In football, Tampa Bay looks good again. Tom Brady was just at the White House yesterday making fun with Joe Biden about the election and everything else. And they're the first NFL team in 50 years, the Super Bowl era, to bring back all 22 players. Usually wow. after players win a Super Bowl, they leave and go you know, sign a big paycheck somewhere else. They got a Super Bowl on their resume. This year, all of Tampa Bay, all 22 players sucked up their ego and re-signed. And many of them re-signed for less because they want to go win another Super Bowl. So they're the far and away leader. They have to beat you know, Kansas City, who has the next Tom Brady in waiting with Patrick Mahomes. It may come to another showdown between Kansas City and uh, Tampa Bay. There's some other good teams, but they, they seem to be the two that people are watching. Great. No, it's good to see that there are, I suppose, some trends with uh, with sports people as well. We we see a lot with the uh, European champions, and uh, yeah, they go off and win the uh, Champions League, and then uh, that team is no longer because someone else offers a bigger price ticket somewhere else. So uh, the other thing we don't understand, and I've studied it as an analyst, is this injury or the fake flopping and injury. <laughs> you know, you look at somebody who doesn't even get nicked and they go down like a, you know, a bag of lumber and, and they're breathing. It looks like they're close to death. And if, you know, a yellow card or red card doesn't come up, you know, they pop back and they start playing again. You know, in hockey, for example, you know, I play hockey every week and I've played since I've been three years old, which is law in Canada. But in hockey, you know, we have players that have officially died on the bench and been revived and then asked to go back in the game. And I was taught that if your leg is still attached, it might be broken in seven places, but if it's still attached to your body, you find your way back to the bench and you don't lay on the ice under no circumstance. So we just, we look at the, the sport and we know that you get more penalties by doing it. And unless the sport changes and starts calling this flopping and stops awarding penalties in this way or goes to a video review of, of the injury, unless all this changes, it's going to continue. But it's really embarrassing to watch at times. It is. And it's amazing that, you know, in, in the UK, obviously we've got the soccer and that takes on, but then we, we've obviously got rugby and you'll see a collision there and the guys are literally getting up bleeding and they just get on with it. And Totally it, different. And you lose yeah. the ear, you just tape it up and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Jay, well, well, I like Jay. When asked for your sports predictions, um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that rather than go with your gut feeling, you were going to pull out the statistics and have it all worked out already. So yeah, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Everything's about numbers, right? That's uh, that's why I'm an analyst, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's what Ian tells me anyway. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for the answers to the questions we've provided today. Great to catch up with you and to chat. Thanks for the all things innovation and, and channel. Thanks for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Really much appreciated. Great speaking to you. And uh, we'll see how the future plays out. And we'll speak to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, look forward to coming back and talking about uh, what we got right. Yeah, great. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find out more about ASM Technologies or about anything that's been discussed in the podcast, visit asmtech.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now and never miss an update. This has been ASM Connected.